Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Board Bench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Boardrooms Best. I'm your host, Nancy May. Today, we have a pretty special show with an incredibly gifted mission-driven leader, Ray LaMontagne, who is chair of the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, which was now founded 30 years ago, it's hard to believe, by Paul Newman, who had this really amazing mission to make the lives of children who are dealing with life-threatening illnesses and were pincushions for doctors and experimenters every day of their little lives to actually find what it was like to be kids again, or to be kids for the first time in their lives in some cases. Seeing what it takes to drive an organization like this from an idea to an internationally renowned group that is in many countries around the world, not just here in the backwoods of Connecticut where I live, but in all corners and facets of the world, is truly an inspiration to all of us, whether we're running a for-profit organization, a family-run business, an entrepreneurial startup, a big giant public company, this is going to give you a little bit of extra grounding to just remind us what's important to everyday living and, and doing what's right. But before we start that, I'm going to stop and just share a little bit about what happens behind the microphone here at the boardroom's best, because we have had an upsurge of listeners from the international ranks. And I really want to say a shout out to all of you and thank you for doing so. If you are not a subscriber and this is your first show, please just click subscribe, press a button, click on your screen, on your phone, whatever your listening device you're listening on, do so and share it with your friends. We are looking for input, advice that you want to share, and I will listen to everything that is brought across my computer, my phone, whatever device you're sharing your connections with, I will do so. And if you want to, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and share your ideas that way. So with that, thank you very much. And we'll get on with our show. It's a pleasure and privilege to introduce you to my good friend and our guest today, Ray LaMontagne. Ray, welcome to The Boardroom's Best. Thank you. Nice to be here. You have a a really interesting and impressive background in a variety of of areas, but since our show is really focused on boardrooms, your expertise is really in the not-for-profit world, correct? Much more so, yes. I I did chair the board of one uh, company, private profit making company but most of my board experience has been in the nonprofit world so let's talk about some of the differences in the variety of not-for-profits yes. and I think the average and I don't want to say average person because there is no average person out there really thinks of not-for-profit as our local charities our hometown communities and also the big organizations like Save the Children and the American Red Cross and, and other organizations like that. But there really is a broad range of different types of mission-driven or philanthropic and not-for-profit organizations. Would you share some of those types of groups and how they differ from one another? Yeah, well, there, there are. You're, you're absolutely right. There, there's a whole range of different non-for-profit organizations, and they demand different things from their boards. For example, 
schools and universities are nonprofits, private schools and universities, and they have boards, and uh, they have certain responsibilities in terms of overseeing the institutions that most of them went to as students and are now, if they uh, get more involved, get onto the boards. Then there are the nonprofits who are operating nonprofits. They have missions, and they need to raise money to pay for those missions, and those also require uh, a different kind of board member. Uh, there are then foundations who make grants. They give away money, and some of them are uh, more general and large, such as like the Rockefeller Foundation or the Ford Foundation, and some of them are more smaller. Uh, many of them are private foundations uh, started by families, so those are family-oriented foundations where uh, they're mainly members of the family on the board, and they sometimes and very often will have outside members as well, but um, the orientation then is to the interest of the family. So there's a broad range. You just can't. It's hard to generalize about nonprofits because there's all kinds of different nonprofits, and they require different things from their boards. And you touch on the whole hospital and healthcare system boards, and those are extremely complex. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about some of the leadership experience that you've had in some of these not-for-profits, and you're probably most recently famous for is the hole in the wall gang camp. Correct. Well, that that is that is my my uh, little baby, as it were. Uh, it's one I've been involved with since the very beginning. Um, it obviously got a tremendous amount of uh, coverage because uh, it was the idea and brainchild of Paul Newman, the actor. Uh, Newman was an extraordinary man, um, and he, in some ways, wanted to acknowledge luck in his life. <clears throat> and um, he decided on one time, it just came to him, uh, that uh, children who were born with life-threatening diseases um, have, uh, had, have had some bad luck uh, through no fault of their own. Um, it just happened that they were born with those uh, problems. And he decided he wanted to do something for that group of, of children um, and, and got the idea of starting a camp that would be equipped to handle these kinds of kids. There were a number of camps that had started for people who had had cancer but were in remission, and they were relatively healthy, even though they had gone through some struggles. But he wanted to push the envelope to the sicker kids and give an opportunity for sick children to have a camp experience. A lot of people told him it wouldn't work. They said, you know, doctors won't let those children go to camp. The parents won't let those children go to pay camp. But he, um, he had a vision, and he was determined to, uh, to test it out, and um, it got created now over 30 years ago, and it turned out to be an extraordinary success. Um, not only were the families uh, willing to send their children to camp, they were, uh, <laughs> they were, they were overly enthusiastic about uh, making sure their children got to this camp, as were the children to come back to camp uh, from summer after summer. And the doctors also saw the benefit that came from, from being at camp. So it was, was an extraordinary uh, event, uh, a nonprofit event, philanthropic event, which now has been replicated all over the world. There are now camps, not only all over the United States, but all over the world as a result of what Paul Newman had as a vision uh, over 30 years ago. I've met some of those family members and, and the kids, and they're just, they're an inspiration to anybody and everybody who is, 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 just gets the privilege of walking through 
But beyond the hole in the wall gang camp, um, those early formative years of any kind of young organization and non-for-profit really set the tone of, of a make or break for that vision coming through. And getting it, getting it right from, from the beginning is really a challenge. How do you go about setting the tone and the leadership in those kinds of boardroom environments and setting things up so that, so that they really do get legs and succeed? I think the, the natural thing for anyone to do in those circumstances is to try to learn as much from experience as you could possibly learn, even though there there had not been camps quite the same as the one that Newman envisioned, uh, there there were camps that uh, did exist for children with different uh, disabilities. So we tried very uh, diligently to see from their experiences uh, how they went about it, so that we could try to not make the same mistakes that they might have made and learned from, and that we could then uh, uh, avoid those kind of mistakes. Uh, so we. We, we, we brought together uh, a number of people who were in that business as such and had them brief us on, on what their experiences were. Um, and then we started building a camp that, a board that would reflect the needs of the camp. And that meant that we were we put on some people with medical background. We put on some people with uh, experience in dealing with children with uh, life-threatening uh, illnesses. We put in people who had the experience of raising money for foundations because this was going to be a non-profit uh, organization. There would be no charge to the children or their families. So it meant that we would have to continue to raise funds every year to fund the operation. Therefore, you go and you uh, look for people who are willing to commit to um, serving on boards, coming to meetings, um, coming to events, and helping you raise money uh, so that uh, the uh, organization can be sustained. So in the not-for-profit, and I've served on a number of not-for-profit boards myself over the years, and what I find fascinating is that the 80-20 rule still seems to hold strong in the not-for-profit world, and money is critical to the, to the mission of these organizations. And how many of the board members will say, well, I just don't ask for money? is beyond me as to why they should even be there. And they may write a check, but it's not enough in order to keep that sustainability going and the vision and mission of the organization because it still needs to generate revenue so that it can fulfill what it is, its purpose is. How do you get over that hump with, with board well, members? I, you know, I, I think that anybody that, um, that, that has that point of view, um, you try to find another role they can play. They can come and work as a volunteer at the camp. Um, they, you know, they can help us with an event, um, and so they contribute in a different way. You don't necessarily then put them on the board because uh, you want a board that is very much invested into making sure that the organization, first and foremost, has enough money to meet the budgets every year. But not only that, you need to have a board that wants to raise additional monies so that the organization can grow and innovate. And then thirdly, you want uh, the board to raise enough money so that you begin to build a reserve fund or an endowment fund so that you, you know that the organization will sustain itself over the years and will have money for the rainy days when there might be recessions in the market and other situations that cause a problem in fundraising. So those are the primary responsibilities along with the hiring of the CEO of the organization. Those are the primary responsibility of a board member. What I've found is when you talk to most people who are 
committed to the cause, they're willing to help out in some way. Um, and, uh, and, and even if they can't come, for example, to many meetings, we have a number of very um, celebrity names on the board of the Hole in the Wall and some of the boards of other organizations that I chair, and often they can't come to as many meetings as business people who are already in New York or what have you because they have other commitments, but they, they help in other ways. Uh, they show up for galas, they perform, they help you recruit uh, talent for your galas. Uh, so there are all kinds of ways, and you just have to adapt to whatever that strength is of the person you're trying to recruit. And you wouldn't recruit that person if you didn't think they had something to, to, to contribute. And what you're looking for, obviously, on your board is diversity. Okay. Uh, and when I say diversity, I don't only mean uh, diversity in terms of gender, uh, diversity in terms of uh, ethnic origin, and diversity in terms of skill sets. Right. Uh, you know, you, you, you love to have somebody with a legal background, you have know, somebody with a social background, somebody that will be able to help you when you face issues that relate to their expertise. So one of the things that I heard you say in, in just the, the last comments was um, the term innovation. And we've addressed innovation in the past in the boardrooms best in our conversations, but I haven't heard that term used that often in the not-for-profit or philanthropic environment. How does that work in your world, and is it different than in the for-profit world? Oh, my goodness. I, you it's know, a big subject, it, it I know. It seems to me <laughs> that if that word's not used in the nonprofit world, they're not doing their job. Uh, it, you always have to uh, look to innovate because uh, situations change. Uh, you want to you get deeper with your, with your target population, and you want to get broader with your, top, uh, with your population. So in the case, say, if you use the example of the hole in the wall, um, we have tried to go to children that are east, that are uh, sicker, than, than the ones we started with 30 years ago because we've learned how to deal with children that are, uh, have greater needs. Uh, we also are looking for illnesses that other people are not paying attention to. There are a lot of illnesses. For example, progeria is an illness where uh, early aging, and there are fortunately very few children are, are, are cursed with progeria, but it's a terrible, terrible disease. Uh, it has an average lifespan of about 14 years, um, and uh, a child uh, has the body of an 8-year-old when they're only 12 years old. Um, and, and nobody was paying attention to these children. We started a session for them, starting with weekends, and, uh, and then expanded it from there. And the, the, the reaction you get from these people when you finally reach out to them, because nobody else has been doing that, it's just extraordinary. And that's innovation. I mean, we're right. constantly trying to push the envelope to newer children, to newer ways of treating those children, and newer ways of helping those children, and also helping the families. When we first started out, we, we, had, we were focused mainly on the children. What we learned was the, the whole family is in crisis when a, children, a child is in crisis. So we're now dealing much more with family issues as well as the, as the camper issues. Um, and so that, that's innovation. And without that, I, it seems to me the organization would be sterile. So I don't understand why innovation wouldn't be one of the top issues that every nonprofit would face. Very good point. And it sounds like in the process of what you went through, 
in this particular organization, you also discovered a whole new market that you didn't even know that you had. It wasn't just the children, but it was the families and the people who surrounded, and quite frankly, it also sounds like many of the doctors who you were know, involved it, in the community. It's really extraordinary what happens when, when, when there's a good idea, and this was a good idea. And that's true of all the other experiences I've had. It has ramifications far beyond your target your goal, your idea. For example, just, I'll give you a couple of examples. Sure. One is, none of us ever thought about the fact that the counselors, the young people that we hire during the summer to work with these children, I cannot tell you how many of them have gone back to their colleges, changed their majors, and became doctors or teachers or social workers because of their experience. Now, that's a side benefit to what we were doing, which none of us had foreseen, but it, 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 it's happened, and it's happened over and over again over 30 years, and it's led to literally thousands of young people who are doing something that I think is much more in the public service than would have happened if, we, if they hadn't had the experience at camp. You mentioned what the doctors learned. Our original doctor at the camp, our first camp doc, who no longer is with us. He passed away a number of years ago, but he was an expert, considered an expert at Yale New Haven in the area of sickle cell. He told me that we had sicklers for, we had one session for sicklers at camp during the summer, that he learned more about treating that disease than he had in 30 or 40 years of practice. Why? Because he saw the onset of the crisis while he was at camp with the children, saw them during the crisis, and then after, whereas when he was practicing medicine, he only saw it during the crisis. So there were all kinds of, of new ways in which uh, um, uh, the organization contributed to the public welfare uh, way beyond what was originally foreseen. So we've talked about all the great benefits here that, that, that touches everybody. And if we were doing a, a, video, lo- a video blog on this, everybody would be able to see my, probably your face and my face beaming from ear to ear. And, yeah. and, and my, my heart is like pounding out of my chest as well. So it's, it's very difficult not to be emotionally engaged in something like this, to want to actually put more muscle behind it. I I do some some speaking from time to time at colleges and universities on public service and philanthropy. And there are certain things that have really surprised me from those experiences. One is the students tell me that nobody else has been talking to them about those issues at their schools which absolutely blows me away because it just, I just say, how, how is that possible? Right. The second thing that I find is that there's a tremendous interest in them to learn more about philanthropy and public service and that they didn't get involved themselves. And so it, it is so much fun. And, I, and, I, pre, and I, I try to tell them, no matter what your goals are, even if your goal is to make as much money as you can, carve out a part of your life to do something in the area of philanthropy because, one, it'll help you with whatever your goal is. You'll meet interesting people that will help, but you'll also have some fun, and you'll have a feeling that you're doing something of importance way beyond what your profession might be. And, um, and, and uh, you know, I've experienced that, and virtually everybody I've talked to 
who who does participate in the nonprofit world um, uh, has that kind of reward. Uh, you you know it's it's trite when people say you always get more than you give, but right. absolutely it happens to be true. Well, so and that that sort of goes on to some of the other things that we talked about before our call, really about the millennial generation, this next generation, and colleges, campus, and campuses, and how they're not necessarily being exposed to these kinds of issues. Yet there's so much of a drive and an interest in it. How do you bring the next generation into an organization when right now we have more generations working together in the workforce than we've ever had in the course of history? Again, you're absolutely right. There's going to be trillions of dollars transferred to this generation over the foreseeable future. So it's very important for anybody involved in the nonprofit world um, to to look at that uh, generation and, and, and study and work at getting them more involved. And what's interesting about this generation in one way is that they, they don't seem to give the way the prior generations were, where you give them a pitch and they'll write out a check if they believe in your pitch. This generation seems to be more willing to give if they get involved personally in some way. And that's why you read about this ice bucket challenge or the number of push-ups you can do or the, the jogging or the walking, so many miles you get so many. If they get personally involved, they seem to be then really much more interested in the charity. So there's a connection there between themselves and the charity that didn't seem to be that necessary in the generations before. At least that's been my limited experience. We're still learning and working with them. But, um, and the other thing, of course, we do is try to get them involved at an early age, and we do that mainly by putting them on committees without necessarily putting them on the board. Um, they're not ready for board membership, many of them, but uh, they certainly can work on committees. And when they do that, they get more personally involved, and then you can see which ones really work well with you and which ones don't, which ones really care, which ones pay attention. And, uh, and it's a great recruiting ground for future board members. Yeah, in years past, I had actually worked on the Board of Girl Scouts, and we had done some incredible work. But what I found fascinating is we always had two Girl Scout representatives on our board. so that they could show us what was happening in their world, in their environment, and they learned to lead at a different level, too. It was was a great experience for both sides, quite frankly. Very smart, yeah. So so we've talked a little bit now about an organization, Hole in the Wall, and that type of mission-driven organization, but we haven't talked about family boards, which brings a whole other challenge um, to the forefront of board leadership. And you've worked in that environment as well, correct? Well, I have. I've been very fortunate in being on the board of the Dyson Foundation, uh, which is chaired by Rob Dyson of the Dyson family. It was set up by the father, Charlie Dyson, um, and uh, the board has three members of the family, two of Rob's children on the board, and three outside directors. I'm one of the outside directors. And there, of course, the family, the um, uh, the goals or the ob- uh, objectives of the family come into play much more, and you usually have legacy gifts that you foundations make where the the, the family members have the charities that they support, uh, the schools they went to, the charities that they believe in, and that 
tends to to dominate in many respects the the giving. Um, the, in the case of the Dyson Foundation, for example, because the family came from the Hudson River uh, Valley area, um, most of the gifts are done in the Hudson River uh, uh, River area, so that we concentrate on that. And so the family essentially dictates um, the goal. The goal still has to be philanthropic. It has to right. meet all the measures of the tax laws, but um, it's much more oriented to the interests of the family. And and this particular board and other family type of boards that you served on has more, uh, I use the term professionalize their board, where you still have family members, but you have outside members. And yes. what, yeah, what, what I've seen actually, which is quite fascinating, is those that actually do professionalize their board have the ability to take their um, their objectives and their outcomes to a much higher level of success than they probably ever would have imagined by just keeping it um, under their their own bushel, shall we say? Yeah, I, I think I'm sure that's true. I mean, because again, they can they can bring in outside talent that they don't necessarily have within their own family uh, and and supplement their own talent with outside talent, and that just makes for a better organization. And I think it's also very helpful to the staff to have people that they feel they can talk to that aren't family members because there's such pressure among staff to essentially fulfill the needs of the family that it's, it's just good for them to... So there's all kinds of little ramifications that take place in family foundations that are helpful to have outside board members. If there's a lot of confidential information that transpires or, or goes across in conversations. How have you worked to sort of help families um, get over that that emotional hump? Um, and it's not just an emotional hump, it's a business hump to say, well, you know, we're talking about sensitive issues beyond yeah. an NDA. Is, is yeah. there a way or a process that you've helped guide through that? You know, I, you're right that those things exist. It's very hard to generalize about them because sure. they're so specific to the relationship between father or daughter or father or son or, or brother. Um, and uh, I think what you've got to do is what you do in most cases is you have to listen. Um, you have to listen to what the problems are, and, um, and you have to try to treat it as fairly as possible. And um, if you've developed credibility with the people that are involved in the dispute or the misunderstanding, it just helps to, to resolve it. And um, so one of the things that I would urge any family foundation members to make sure you bring people on your board who are good at that kind of mediation, because it often happens that there are uh, disappointments, uh, misunderstandings, where family members still feel that they're getting the right fair shake. Um, but you know what? It's, it's been a great institution. Uh, if you look at the, what the Rockefeller family has done, the Carnegie family, uh, Ford family over the years, uh, you know, this, this country is pretty unique in what it's done in relation to public philanthropy. Yeah, we are we are an incredible, or we have an incredible history of what's gone on in the family uh, business and the entrepreneurial market, quite frankly. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing that that I see often with organizations that are working with family offices and uh, and family-owned businesses is they get into the emotional aspect of it, yet they tend to kind of ignore the fact that this is a business, and ultimately the goal of the business is to acquire and retain customers at a profit so that it can continue to survive and do its mission and its work um, exceptionally well. And that can't be ignored. 
So um, the other thing is, is we're seeing a lot of right now as the baby boomers are retiring and, and moving on to new careers, uh, second, second generation careers of their own or third or fourth types of t- careers. There are a number of people that I hear saying, well, I'm going to retire and I'm going to go lead a not-for-profit board. And personally, that just raises the hair on the back of my neck because there is no harder job in the world than to be a CEO and a leader of a not-for-profit organization. Where, is, where are the mistakes being made in that thought process? Or maybe is it not a mistake that they should retire and go into not-for-profit leadership because it's, it's a good you know, retirement I, I think I think that really depends on on, on the person. Um, I, I've seen that happen a number of times, and I think the people, uh, some people have done a terrific job. Other people have not adapted very well to the change uh, because it is a different environment. But um, so I, I think you, it, it's hard to again generalize in, in that area. I think it's a wonderful thing uh, for people to, uh, to to get involved in a nonprofit. I, I would urge them to get involved before they retire. Uh, uh, because, first of all, you can bring so many things to a board. If you're already in business, you've got relationships, and those relationships are very important to the charity that you're involved with for the most part. Once you retire, you lose some of those relationships, and you lose some of the clout that you have right. of bringing people to the table. Um, and so you don't become as effective as if, when you're actually working. And the problem is obviously time. Uh, busy uh, executives uh, have a hard time carving out enough time to do things that aren't involved in the bottom line because they're being judged in terms of their stock price or in terms of their board as to, uh, as to their profitability. But I think more and more in this country, uh, people are recognizing the importance of that. For example, we're very lucky, again, getting back to Whole Newell, we have a wonderful relationship with companies like Aetna and Travelers who are based in Hartford, not far from our camp. And then the CEOs of both those companies have told me over and over again how incredibly important important their relationship was with camp because their employees feel a connection to camp. They raise money for the camp. They come and volunteer at the camp. They come and, and clean up the camp between sessions, get the camp prepared for the new kids coming in. And the spirit that that creates in that organization, the CEOs have told me, is incredibly worthwhile and, and far surpasses the value of whatever contribution they're making monetarily. So uh, we've talked about boards, we've talked about millennials, but we haven't done a whole lot about talking that CEO succession process, yeah. other than just this this short banter. Yeah. Finding that CEO and that leader is is crucial to the success of any organization. It is that that's job one really for the corporate for for a board is is the, the, the picking and choosing of a CEO and the changing of that CEO if necessary and it, 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 that can be very rough and can be very rugged. Um, I, I happen to be a little bit uh, not very traditional in that area in the sense that uh, I I like to try to find that person um, when uh, the uh, president of City Center was retiring, and I had to find a new president. I called people in the in the business. I called people in other at Kennedy Center. I called people at Lincoln Center, and and asked them, you know, who do you know? Who's out there? Who's doing a good job? And I accumulated a list of you know fifteen or twenty people, and started contacting them as to whether they were interested in being considered. And we finally put together a group of about eight or nine that became real candidates. And from that group, we chose one, and it happened to has worked beautifully. And and very well. 
but I think most organizations tend to go to a headhunter, and the headhunters then produce a number of candidates. The board usually creates a, a committee to, to, instead of a whole board, to be looking into whether that's the right person for the CEO job, and then they will come back to the board with a recommendation. Um, I, I get I get a little bit more proactive as the chair uh, in terms of finding these people because I think that's the most important job almost that you have because no matter what you do as a board member, no matter how often and how much time you spend, you're not there every day like the CEO. The right. CEO really is the person that really has to carry the mantle of, of fulfilling your mission. Well, and, and you're unusual in that role that you you have a, a very vast network in the not-for-profit environment, the philanthropic environment, and you know how to dig and be creative about it. But the average board member doesn't have that skill set. And you know as well as I do that probably once you've found that person or the top two or three, more importantly, it's doing the due diligence beyond the surface and making sure that, in fact those individuals or that one individual is actually, you're going to be able to hold their feet to the fire and they're going to be able to execute on the big goals that you have set forth. Tend to, when you look for recommendations and you call them to check on their recommendations, they obviously put down people that they think are going to be positive. And most people don't like to be negative about friends or about people that they've worked with. So you have to sift through that because you get a lot of misinformation when you're doing that kind of research. Um, and believe me, I've made mistakes like everybody else, and, and um, I regret them, but um, you, there, there's, there's nothing like... The other thing that then the board has to do, it has to really be tough about making a change when a change is necessary. And that, that, that also means, uh, in terms of, of the chair of a board uh, and of the nominating committee, to be tough about board members as well, is to move people off boards when you feel that they've served their term um, and, uh, and you need to bring in fresh blood. That's very difficult at times. It's painful um, for many directors. In fact, I just was reading um, uh, for the second time a study that was done the end of last year where uh, 40%, 42% of directors, now this is for-profit boards versus not-for-profit boards, but 42% of directors have said that at least one or more of their board peers must go mm-hmm. on the board. Mm-hmm. Yet having the strength and the backbone and quite, the, quite frankly the character to make that change happen is not easy. Yeah. How do you go about it? Well, you're absolutely correct. It, it, is, it, is, it is the most difficult part of the process, uh, either asking a CEO to step down or asking a fellow board member to step down. Um, the, the, the reverse is also true. It's very often that the chairman themselves should be stepping down, and they don't, and that creates even more of a problem for the board and how to get rid of the chair. Um, and in my case, what I try to do is I try to make sure that the people who are the most in control of the board, besides the chair, uh, the various committees and what have you, um, keep reminding them that, uh, that the mission is more important than any individual. And they have to keep that in mind. And even though they might hurt people's feelings, including the feeling of the chair, if they feel the chair should step down, it's their obligation to really speak up. Because if they don't, they're really not fulfilling uh, the mission the way it should be fulfilled. They take on a responsibility when they go on the board, and that, that responsibility is to buy into the mission of the organization. 
And that mission is more important than personal relationships. As important as personal relationships are, I don't mean to demean that, they're very important, but you always have to keep the mission first. And that's a true sign of a leader, is really knowing when it's time to to move on and leave the organization stronger than it was when you first arrived. Um, one, of, one of my dear friends, Francis Hesselbein, who you probably also know as well, who is the CEO of the Hesselbein Leadership Institute, which she together founded with Peter Drucker many years ago, mm-hmm. said that the role of a CEO and a board is really to be a servant leader. And in the course of, of my years and experience, and I'm sure yours, we see many of those people out there. And it's, uh, it's good when we do see people who are putting the right foot forward for the right, for, right reason. I, I think a servant leader is a great description of what a, uh, any board member is, as well as the chair. And, um, it, it, you know, again, I, I said something earlier, which I will repeat again, and that is, you gain so much from being involved with these organizations. Um, it, it, it's hard to let go sometimes, but if you still have the best of the organization in mind, you've got to be willing to let go if that's the right thing to do, or you've got to really, uh, be willing to let somebody else go if that's the right thing to do. And um, uh, I mentioned, I don't know, before, whether uh, it was before or after with this uh, question, that uh, I've had that experience where I've had to let people go, and it's been very painful, and uh, it's led to problems in relation to friendships. But you've got to put that as a secondary obligation. Your first obligation is the, the mission and to do everything you can to make sure that everybody involved is, is contributing to that mission in the way that uh, they, they need to, to keep it alive and to keep it growing and to sustain it. Uh, early on in my, in my board uh, career, I had the privilege of serving as president of a, of a not-for-profit organization board and that had a very dysfunctional board. It was large, it was cumbersome, um, the organization was losing strength, and, and, and it was in a, I wouldn't quite call it a state of chaos, but um, I came in and decided that it was probably time after doing assessment to, to really do some restructuring, and um, asked every single member on the board to step down. And we started from scratch. Good and for you. It was a, it was it was painful, I have to tell you. But, but the interesting conversation, Ray, I have done. to say, yeah. Somebody's got to do it, yeah. and um, it's got to be done. Otherwise, uh, you find, uh, you know, that's true of corporations as well as uh, nonprofits. I mean, the profit world, we've seen over and over again. I mean, when I uh, was growing up, uh, the names of, of Howard Johnson, uh, yes. you know, uh, Pan American Airlines, uh, uh, Xerox, so these were all legendary names. That you, and, then, and then, you know, uh, here I am still in my lifetime, and these guys... They're gone. They're gone. History, I, have, I have to say, one of the amazing um, lessons that I had from that experience, that, that early governance experience, is that every single person, except for one of those individuals, said thank you. They didn't know how Good. to step down themselves. Good. And the organization grew 300% the next year. Good. It was phenomenal experience. So it was yeah. a lesson well learned, and but, but it's, it's still it's painful. Also, isn't it rewarding? I mean, you oh, just feel, I mean, I really, you feel badly about what you had to do in some ways, but you also feel good about what you had to do. And, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it, it, you know, life is not supposed to be 100% uh, bowl of cherries. You've you got to accept that there's some pain uh, to, to doing some things correctly. And, 
and you do the best you can. And I, I, in that particular process, my my first um, concern obviously was for the organization, and then the other was to deal with empathy and respect of those that I had to deal with, mm-hmm. and and that was for uh, the forefront of every conversation. And it was a two way conversation; it wasn't just a, a delivery of a notice. Yeah. So um, one that I look back to to this day and say, "Wow, um, well, you know, congratulations!" I, I, I try and bring that forward in everything that that I do and we do here at, at Board Bench. Good, but um, well, we've both been very lucky. I mean, I was so, so lucky in that uh, when I graduated from <clears throat> law school. Um, back in the 1960s, my first job out of law school was to go to work for John D. Rockefeller III, wow. the, the oldest of the five Rockefeller brothers. And then I served essentially as counsel to all of his philanthropic entities. And he was involved in things like the Asia Society, the Japan Society, Lincoln Center, the Rockefeller Foundation, you name it. Um, and uh, he was the most full-time philanthropist of the five brothers. The others all had other things they did, Nelson in politics, David in banking, <clears throat> Winthrop in politics. John III was a full-time philanthropist, and working with him and going to him or to these board meetings and seeing the reaction of the people that we'd hired to run these organizations and their relationship with him um, taught me a lot at that time because uh, he did it the right way. Um, He was a really first-class philanthropist who uh, believed deeply in supporting the CEOs as long as they were doing the job that they needed to do. Um, And it was a a great learning experience. Uh, I'm very grateful for that, having had that time. Well, we've all been very fortunate. Both of us have been very fortunate, Ray, and, and, and I just as much so, if not more today, to have yeah. you here as our guest at the Boardroom's Best. And I want to thank you again for your shared wisdom and your insights and, uh, and to being a friend and joining us here today. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure and a real honor. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.